Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. This is the show for you. My guest today is Travis Watts, who used to be a passive investor who discovered investing in syndications and loved it so much that he actually now joined another syndication company to manage investors. And we're going to talk about all about how to take care of investors today on this show. And if you're interested in investing passively, with us, we'd love to have a conversation with you at Nighthawk Equity. Go to nighthawkequity.com and schedule a call with us. We have some upcoming opportunities we'd love to share with you. So make sure you check that out if, if you're in that camp. And I want to give a, a shout out to Rick Tangway on Amazon. He read the yellow book and says, when I discovered Michael was writing this book, I was excited to read it. He covers many key aspects, even the ones that most of us probably feel are preventing us from succeeding. The book did not disappoint. Rick, thanks so much for that. and. I want to highlight Melissa Elizonda, who did her first deal, and she was a 114-unit deal that she did in Augusta, Georgia for $14 million. Congrats, Melissa, on that's a monster first deal. Well done. And I want to bring on our co-host, Garrett Lynch. What's going on, Garrett? What's going on, Michael? So today we're talking about investors. Now, how, what are some of the ways that we take care of investors? Yeah, so... Investors with our company, so that they get, first of all, complete transparency into our deals in the beginning, right when we close on a deal with them, we have three webinars back to back each month with updates, with pictures, and just kind of anything in relation to the progress. We let them ask questions. We inform them about kind of how things are going to go forward using communication with our company. And we have a designated director by the name of David, who is one-on-one -on -one fielding any questions along the way that may come up for investors. We also have obviously a lot of investors that come around for your event, Dealmaker Live, Michael. We're hosting a meetup event actually a little bit later this year in November for some of our investors to come and just meet and meet and greet and tour the properties that we have. So there's a constant communication that, that happens with investors. Is if things are going good, we make mention of the things that are going great. If things are not going so good, we'll have a transparent conversation. So everything is really about transparency and communication with our organization so that you know exactly what the status of your investment is and how things are progressing. I think communication is key. Long time ago, I was an investor with some developer. This was literally like 20 years ago. And this guy ended up losing all the investment and then got investigated by the SEC and literally got like convicted of, could never raise money in the state of Virginia again. But through that process, I learned that when things go badly, the operator stops communicating, right? So they stop sending a newsletter. They won't return your emails or phone calls. And you're like, oh, shoot. And that irritates investors more than anything else. And every one of our deals has not gone 100% smoothly. And so what we do is we just step up the level of communication because one thing that investors don't like is be surprised. 
with some shocking news that, you know, the operator knew for weeks and possibly months. And all of a sudden now the crap has hit the fan and now we have no choice but to talk about it. And investors don't like that. I mean, they don't like hearing bad news either, but they'd rather hear news as it's developing so they're not surprised. And so our culture really is to communicate regularly, especially if things aren't going quite the way they, they are. And so we're yeah. talking about we're talking about that today on our on our show here with Travis because it's, his journey is interesting because he started investing in single family houses as a you know as a his money to invest. Okay, I want to put it into real estate, so he becomes a landlord and he buys a house. He buys a short term rental. And he goes, my goodness, this is a lot of work. And then he decided to passively invest in syndications and loved it so much that he goes, man, I want to work for one of these operators. He's now working with. Joe Fairless at Ashcroft Cap Capital. And what we jam on today is how to best take care of your investors, some best practice. So it's a really good show here with Travis. Let's get into it. Travis, welcome to the show today. Hey, thrilled to be here. Glad to be back. It's been a few years. It's been a little while. And I, I just let's look at your backstory. How did you get started with investing passively in syndications? Because there's a lot of people listening to this stuff. This is pretty cool. But, you know, I've always invested in the stock market. And how did you get started with syndications? Sure. Well, the story could be said a lot of different ways, but I think it starts from my upbringing and childhood. So my parents were always about this, this value-add stuff. They were not investors in value-add multifamily or anything, but it was all about, let's buy a used car that's got some issues and let's fix it and make it worth more and try to maintain our value in it or buy used clothing and you know <laughs> resale it for the same price you pay, that kind of stuff. So I was always fascinated with money, but more from a budget perspective. And still, I, you know, I started thinking as I got older about you know, let's just say I was the best budgeter ever and I made $10,000 a month in W-2 income, which would have been, you know, a, a great achievement for me as a, as a child, you know, to strive for. Well, you still got to pay for housing and food and expenses and lifestyle and travel and insurance, all these things. And so even if I clip coupons my whole life and I saved as much as I could, I mean, my highest and best might be three or 4,000 per month that I could put away. And if you're just sticking that in the bank and you're just waiting till retirement, you know, you're going to get eaten up by inflation. That's just quite frankly, never going to be enough. And you're going to have to make a ton of sacrifices your whole life. So I got turned on like so many people with the rich dad, poor dad books and that kind of stuff into real estate and taxes. And it was just a whole new world for me to explore. And so the first thing I did, Michael and, and Garrett was house hacking. So I bought a two bed, one bath, and it was in a college town. It was two miles from Colorado State University. And I had just come out of college. And so I knew there was a demand for a furnished place that was a rental. And so my mortgage was like $640 a month. And I was getting $600 a month in cash flow that I didn't have to work for. So that was like the wheels turning right there. And I thought, how do I turn this 600 and times that by you know 50 or 100 how do i do this over and over without having 100 roommates and so that led to you know fix and flips buy and holds vacation rentals i did all kinds of stuff in single family until i burned out and i think that's the story for so many people you know you don't realize how active that really gets until you're you know seven properties deep and all of a sudden it's like you're you're running around i had a w2 job I was working 100 hours a week and then i'm having to manage all this on the side and man i had zero time for family for friends for dating for travel i had no time in my life so for me it was all about what i call time freedom and the ability to do more with my time and so i ended up selling i'm just shortening the story for you guys end up selling all my single family homes including the house i lived in and i ended up going into real estate private placements 
which I found out about through a couple mentors in a local real estate meetup group in Boulder, Colorado. And I just did one at a time, minimum investments here and there, started diversifying and realized that's a real thing that people can do. To your point, I always just thought about stock market or single family home. It's real estate or it's stocks. And that's that's where the world ends right there. So I've learned a lot over the years. But for me, it was it was about freeing up time and 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 having a life and not just living to work. Yeah. And and you then made a transition to working with Ashcroft Capital. And you're actually managing investors. And I think your background is awesome because it, it puts you in their shoes. So when you're talking to a prospective investor, yeah. you kind of know what you're th- what they're thinking, you know, what they want, yeah. you know, what they're maybe concerned about. And tell us a little bit of background on how that came about to your current role today. Yeah. Well, the first thing I did when I started getting serious about real estate and cash flow and and I got the bug, so to speak, is I, I did my first like net worth and budget calculations. I'm like, what if I sell everything and go into this passive income stuff? And I realized that by doing that, I could quit my oil field job, which was a job I really despised. I never saw myself there long term. It was just not a good fit for me. And the first thing I did, ironically, I went to go work for a huge brokerage house, got a Series 7, 63. I wanted to do stocks, bonds, and mutual funds to start learning about that too. So I wasn't just a one-trick pony. Then I realized real estate's really where my passion lies. That's really what what I want to go with. Worked for a small syndication startup group for a few years, helping them with investor relations because that's what they needed. And because they were a startup, they were they just needed somebody. <laughs> so it just kind of like fell into my lap that way. And then I had been investing with Joe Fairless and Ashcroft for a number of years. I was an LP in a lot of their deals. And Joe had his firstborn daughter, Quinn, and I knew he didn't want to be out on the road and doing all these travel events and conferences. So I said, look, this is my passion and I love educating people on this stuff. It's what I do full time. Let me take that off your plate and call me whatever you want to call me, but I'll just get out there and I'll do podcasts, webinars, you know, meetups, whatever you need. And that's kind of how it came to be with with Joe year, years later. Yeah, it's funny. I was I think I was got together at, at- Dealmaker Live a couple of years ago, and he was like talking. He, I was like, Joe, you're still calling, talking to all the investors? Because yeah, yeah, it's really important. I was like, well, I'm sure it is, but is that really the best use of your time, you know? And yeah. so I'm glad he brought you on because, you know, you now can focus on this. So let's talk about some of the best practices, right? People, you know, sure. how how do you, what are some some keys or how you take care of your investors? What do you think is the most important when you interact and and, and deal with potential investors, or even existing investors? Sure. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said, you know, I I try to come from the perspective that I am an LP investor myself, not only with Ashcroft, but other groups too. So I can kind of come from that angle. This is what I see. And this is how I think it stacks up and my thoughts on it. Again, never, you know, recommending or endorsing, but just having that small time chat, I think is really useful. Also, a thing I've I've learned over the years from the brokerage house to you know the startup to here is not to be a product pusher. You don't have to be a salesperson. And, and in fact, I'm not, and I and I never will be. You try to be solution oriented. I try to ask people about what they're trying to achieve, why they're trying to achieve it. And I start tuning the conversation towards that direction, right? I'm trying to find a solution if possible to help solve the problems that they have, or to help them achieve what they're trying to achieve. I think that's really key for people and not just to say, hey, I'm Travis Ashcroft. Here's our fund. It's monthly distributions. Here's the returns. You know, Do you want to put 100K here? That's just not a good approach. <laughs> it doesn't usually result in a high ROI. 
So talk about some of the problems that potential investors have. It's interesting that you that you mentioned that. And and yeah. you know, some probably because they listen to Joe's podcast or already yeah. have syndications in in their brain and some sure. know it more than others, but but fundamentally, what are they trying yeah. to do? What are they trying to solve when they talk to you? Yeah, well, a lot of people are trying to obviously build wealth, but very select few are really focused on cash flow and passive income. So I've kind of made that my little niche to teach people about the power of monthly cash flow. And especially if you're able to turn that over, you know, year after year, a lot of our investors are just, they're quite frankly, just focus on their highest and best. They're a doctor, they're a dentist, they're a attorney, they're a pro athlete, whatever they do. They're not, they don't want to flip the houses. They don't want to take their eye off the ball and, and sacrifice their weekends and all this kind of stuff. So I would say the biggest pain point for most people I speak to is just not wanting to be so active in addition to what they're already doing. And I would also say, because we work with high net worth and high income people, taxes is a huge one. So how do, how do you reduce taxes or just quit adding to your bracket, you know, and, and bring that down? So that's a, that's a huge one that I run into as well. I mean, gosh, there's, there's so many, I mean, you hear, send my kids to college, you hear early retirement, you hear, I mean, I could go on and on. There's a lot, but whatever it is, I always start the conversation with the investor to let you know, them kind of vent out what it is they're trying to do. And then again, I try to, if possible, fine tune the messaging towards that and not just say, oh, th thanks for sharing. Well, here's our fund, you know, <laughs> I'll send you a brochure. Yeah. And so it's interesting, I would tend to gauge our investor sentiment, like right now, for example, and, yeah. you know, it kind of ebbs and flows, for example, COVID wig people out, you know, yeah. how, how, how do you, how do you see investors react to certain things like just take it now for example right like now yeah. versus maybe six months ago or or maybe even two years ago what what is yeah. on on investors minds right now it's funny how all asset classes really tie in together when things go in cycles or have their ups and downs i think our our human psychology is all really the same you know so right now reminds me so much of the summer of of 2020 when the pandemic uh, onset you see everyone's personality types start coming out a lot more. And you've got a lot of people, hey, I'm on the sidelines. I'm going to wait and see. You've got some people like under the impression that, hey, as interest rates go up, that means that they're repricing and discounts on the multifamily. So I'm going to keep investing and I'm going to kind of dollar cost average through the downturn. And you've got everyone in between. But there is a lot of money, I think, still sitting on the sidelines. And so as markets recover, like we saw in 2021 and everyone's just buying everything and everything's just going through the roof, then it's kind of the opposite. Everyone's just throwing money everywhere, you know, and and maybe not doing as much due diligence as they should. So that's what I see. And and what I subscribe to is is kind of what Seneca said, you know, 2000 years ago, Roman Stoic. He said, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. And I think a lot of people are always think worst case scenario. Oh my God, we're going in recession. It's going to be 2008 all over again. I remember what happened. I lost my home. I lost my job. My 401k got cut in half. It's happening again. We're due for it, you know, but it doesn't always pan out that way. And if you're educated in these types of asset classes that, that we both invest in, there's a lot of bullish case to be made for them, I believe, especially in times of recession. So something to keep in mind. I definitely agree with that, Travis. I think that's it could go either way. No one really knows, can predict the future realistically. Yeah. I, I think going, even going back to your comment on 2020, 
you know, at that point it was doomsday for the world, right? Like all the, yeah. all the debt funds shut down essentially. And everyone's like, Oh, this is it. It's here. And then followed by a complete turnup in, in literally everything yeah. due to inflation and apartments were impacted in such a positive way in a short amount of time. And everyone thought it was doomsday. So you don't really know. And I think the core of apartments, the core, the core situation is that there people need a place to live. Yep. And it's a strong asset class in comparable being comparable to really any other. It's one of the strongest that, that we're in right now. And so I yeah. think getting people more exposed to it is is so important. So I'm just curious, how do you guys attract more? investors and how do you get the word out so that they get interested and come and talk to you? Yeah, it's a great question and appreciate your comments, Garrett. We've like everybody in the space, <laughs> we, we've tried a lot of things and a lot of things haven't stuck, you know, so we're always kind of it's a moving target. I'd say some of our most effective stuff has been doing property tours and in-person events, you know, meetups that we're the host of, a happy hour. We've done these road shows because, you know, or even being at a conference, anytime you can get face to face, that whole no like and trust really skyrockets, right? You really start to know someone quickly and not just over a batch of emails that have been in your inbox for the last year or something like that. I just got off a webinar before we're doing this call. And so there I'm speaking with a bunch of, you know, accredited investors. We've done medical events that way. So we've done a lot of different stuff. And I'd say a game changer for us was moving to a 506C offering where we could generally advertise our deals. I think that gave us a ton of exposure. And simultaneously, we lowered the minimum investment to 25,000, which allowed a lot of people to toe dip when you know like 60% of our investment today that we raise is returning investors and i think you know that person who steps in at 25 ends up at 100 plus you know in the next year or two so well that's a really interesting comment so that's we actually have gone the, the opposite we've gone up up to minimum and it's helped us get through raises faster yes i'm curious yep. yeah i'm curious in and you know your guys methodology and going down to 25 how are you getting them the 25k investor to go in for 100 Mm -hmm. And how do you fill up your deals only going with a 25K minimum? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Well, we have over, I think, 3,000 some investors at this point. So a lot of it, you know, just comes from, from repeat, like I said. So how it works is we're doing funds right now. So someone can step in at 25 in January, let's say, and then wait till July. Now we've acquired several properties, right? Then they can step in with another 25K if they want. And then they could step in with another 25K if it's still open in November. So they end up, you know, with 75 just over the course of the year and not having to call up 100K right off the bat on day one, take it or leave it. We're about to close the deal. The other benefit that I found is we used to do one deal at a time. And it was really unfortunate to have a great investor that's like, man, I'm itching at the bit to do your next deal. I can't wait for it. And then that deal comes up and they have some circumstantial issue where their capital's tied up or it's like, oh, the closing to my home got postponed a month. So I don't really have the money right now, but they will have it like two weeks after we close. And so the fund allows them to get into the deal and not lose out on it. And so we were getting, you know, a lot of deals funded within a couple of days when we did one at a time. So I think that's the other reason. And the, the last point I'll make to that is I believe our 
average investment size is still around like 125 or something like that. So just because it's a 25K minimum doesn't mean everyone's coming in at 25K. Most people aren't. It's just for those that are like, yeah, I would do 50, but you know, I just have 25 right now. I'll have more later on. If you're interested in passively investing in multifamily syndications, we'd love to hear from you. Go to nighthawkequity.com, click the join button and uh, join our investment club. Fill out a short form and then you can have a call with us and we'd be happy to share with you some of our upcoming investment opportunities we have. That's nighthawkequity.com. Talk to you soon. You mentioned some of the differences of raising money for one deal at a time versus a fund. And you just mentioned the downside of, of that. But how is it different raising money for a fund versus raising money for, on a deal-by-deal -deal basis? I mean, one advantage from, from your perspective, people have, you have a deal, you have a lot of excitement, you have this webinar, you know, there's yeah. an end and people kind of rush to try to get in. And a fund yeah. is always open. Yeah, well, I can get yeah. in there now or maybe later or maybe never. There's no, there's no urgency. Yeah. So how have you guys found raising money for one versus the other? Kind of some pros and cons maybe. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's totally a fair question. I'm not, I'm not the guy to stand up here and say the fund's the only way to go and it's the best and all that kind of stuff. I, I like both, to be honest with you. And to your point, you can create a lot more sense of urgency and excitement and hurry up. It's going to fully subscribe soon, you know. And that really does work <laughs> to even me, knowing my psychology and how it works behind the scenes. So, to me, here's the big picture with individual deals. I felt like it was constantly like like shove on the gas and then pump the brakes and then shove on the gas and pump the brakes. You know, we got new PPMs, new subscription agreements, a lot of inefficiencies, right? And so it's always that stop and go, sorry, you missed out. How about the next one? And then that doesn't meet their criteria. And then, you know, just inefficient, I think. When you get to the point where I think we're raising like, I don't know, 120 million this year. I mean, when you get to the point where you can kind of raise that amount of capital, maybe one deal at a time where you're subscribing them in a day or two, is a little less efficient than been buying a portfolio or maybe even a fund in that sense. And on, you said repeat investors. If you have a fund open and let's say you're doing a whatever, $50 million fund and mm -hmm. someone invests a minimum 25, what induces them to keep investing with you and invest, like you said, the 75 versus yeah. simply waiting until the next fund, right? That's one advantage. If you're doing a deal, let's say every quarter and you get the minimum from the investor, they're going to put in a minimum, you know, four times a year. Versus with a fund, for example, like, yeah, I'm just going to put my minimum in and then I'll, next year I'll put the other in. And meanwhile, they'll invest somewhere else. Or how, mm -hmm. how are you inducing or encouraging people to, get to keep investing in the fund? Yeah. So to your point earlier about kind of that excitement of, of each deal. So we still do a webinar presentation on every deal that we put in the fund and an email still goes out and it's still a first come first serve offering. And, you know, we have two different share classes and our, our, our A shares always subscribe first. And so there's still elements of sense of urgency. And of course you do get the, the types to your point that are, well, I'll just wait around till it right before it closes and try to get in, or I'll just do 25 and next year, maybe 25. But what I've found to be more of the case is it's really about the investor's liquidity at any given time. And, and again, back to the one deal at a time, that was just the tragedy is when someone's sitting on 100K burning a hole in their pocket, we don't have a deal. So they go invest with our competitor and then we do have a deal. And it was like, oh. <laughs> you know, whereas they they would have had an opening and, and they know with a certain amount of certainty that they've they've got a leeway of several months, at least first come, first serve, that this fund will be open. So again, pros and cons, but that's that's the macro.
But overall, it's, it's, you seem like you, you like it better than before, it sounds like to me. Garrett, you had a question. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, so I've heard both sides of this. Yeah. If you have a lot of like a volume of investors, do you mm -hmm. think it would make more sense to have a fund for that type of an environment as an organization versus if you have, you know, let's say 20 bigger guys that are repeat investors on individual deals? I'm just curious your take. Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know, man. You could play it either way. I, I want to address some downfalls to a fund too, because I don't want to sound too biased towards just because we do a fund. So with a fund, you're having to put more trust in the operator to do what they say they're going to do. You know, we say we're going to acquire six to 10 properties this year. We're going to raise 120 million. We're going to be in these markets. We're going to get this kind of financing. Yeah, that's a lot of trust. If you invest in January before we even have a deal, that all that stuff's going to pan out. At least you have the certainty with one deal, you can go visit that property yourself. You can do your own due diligence. You can master and understand everything you need to know about that one deal instead of putting 100K in and saying, boy, I hope they buy a good one. So it's it's more like, I like to paint the parallel between the, the stock investors. It's kind of the difference between you know stock picking and looking at individual fundamentals and spreadsheets and like, yes, I'm going to buy you know this company for these reasons. I like it a lot. I'm going to pass on this company for these reasons. Instead of just being an index fund investor and saying, I'll buy the S&P index and you know, I'm busy over here. I just want to be passive. And that's not my expertise. I'll let someone else handle the management. I just want to grow my portfolio over time. So we have a lot more of that mentality where, you know, once they know, like, and trust us, once they become a repeat investor, once we show them, we underpromise and over-deliver over and over again. That's always our, our mantra. They tend to put a lot more trust in at that point. So it's not always the first new investor with the 25K that's in that boat. <laughs> now, you mentioned repeat investors, which is critical as you build your, your, your business. And obviously one factor of that is that you, you actually deliver, you know, you deliver on your promise or whatever the returns are, but, but I'm curious to see what else you guys do to take care of your investors, you know, above and beyond the actual returns of it. What, what do you guys do on a routine basis to take care of your investors, to engage them so that they continue investing with you over time and and even more importantly telling all their friends and bringing them to you like what are you guys doing as a best practice sure i think quite honestly we could do more in terms of pr promoting doing referrals so we've done a couple of things we did we did a whole testimonial page there's a whole compliance movement where that's now some that you can do so we have a whole testimonial page that you can sort by either geographic region so say you're in atlanta and you want to meet up with some atlanta folks or at least hear their stories of why they invest with us or say you're a medical doctor you can sort by that and listen to what medical doctors say so i i use the crap out of that page <laughs> you know as i'm especially you know those defined you know i'm an airline pilot or whatever that's a great resource and tool we have also you know, I didn't address this when when I was talking about me being IR. I was the first guy to come on after Joe. We've now built a team. So we have an investor relations manager, and then he has a team built out underneath him. So we're able to do things that we weren't before, like more of a white glove service. You know, here's the person that's your point of contact. They will take care of everything. They're always available on email, blah, 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 phone text. If they aren't, it's auto forwarded to another rep who will get in touch with you within 24 hours. See, we couldn't do all that stuff before, especially when Joe was the, was the guy and he goes on a week long trip who's taking the calls, you know what I mean? So I think you have to kind of scale into some of this stuff, but that's some of, of what we do is trying to make a easier and more seamline 
process for people. What other things do you guys do? You mentioned, I think you mentioned earlier, you do some kind of events for your investors. Do you send yeah. them gifts at some, you know, what, what else do you guys do in addition to what you just mentioned? Yeah. So we were doing, and, and we still are, by the way, this road show. So we took a, a, a map, geographic map of where our investors are. And, and of course, like anyone, they tend to be near, you know, big city center hubs. You've got Phoenix or Orlando or Cincinnati where Joe lives or Dallas or whatever. So we did this whole road show where we go out, we'll do a presentation, we'll do a happy hour, free food, free drinks. I do property tours. That's my favorite thing to do. So I take care of all of Florida because that's where I live. And you know, we own in Jacksonville and Tampa and Orlando. And and again, I'm just a big fan of in person. You know, there's webinars I'll get on sometimes with a thousand people and and you'd be lucky to get one investor there, but you show up sometimes to a property tour of three people and all three invest. It's just it's insane to me the conversion. And it's not always that way, but I'm just painting the those extremes. So yeah, that's I, I try to get in front of people in every outlet I can. You'd be surprised at where people are. I did this podcast like a month ago and I just under my breath was like, I have this financial statement I use and I've had it for years and I think it's a great mother. It's like, if anyone wants it, just reach out. And I had like 20 messages on my Instagram and my LinkedIn and my email. And it's like, man, like I didn't think that many people were on Instagram that was into this kind of stuff. So you just never know. I think I'm a big fan of just putting content everywhere, seeing where it sticks and kind of doubling down what works. And what are you guys doing on, on content? Is it something that you're doing or someone else in the organization? How are you attracting new new investors? Yeah. So we've got a whole marketing team built out, just brought on a brand new director of marketing last week, actually. So we'll be making a lot of changes, I'm sure. And again, like everyone, we've tried a lot that that hasn't worked as well. But, you know, banner ads and, and Google stuff and Facebook ads and LinkedIn stuff, bigger pockets ads. We do conferences. I do these webinars. So, you know, we're out there trying to do what we can, but, you know, I can't recommend any any one of those sources as being like the end all be all. And that's how it's done. It, it doesn't work that way. I was just going to ask you for the silver bullet, Travis. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> get it, get an Instagram as big as the old Cardone guy, right? And do that. <laughs> I don't yeah. Know. Brent, Brandon Turner <laughs> swears by it, of course. Uh, Instagram, oh yeah. He's like, how can that example. possibly work? It sounds like these road shows, they're probably a lot of work, but it sounds like they work pretty well. What else is working for you? Yeah, I, I just, I, they they do actually. And what's cool about it is, again, we have a sizable team now. So we'll call it five, six people total that can actually host these things. And sometimes it's just a property manager at one of our properties. So they're not hard to do. It's usually one person flying out with a hotel for a night. And, you know, it's not a huge expense and then food and drinks and that kind of stuff. So I can't give you all our all our secrets, Michael. What is this, man? Is this even going to air? Or are you just picking my brain? What's going <laughs> that on? That was just, the point. Just, just, uh, yeah, <laughs> this I mean, isn't even looking, a podcast. Is it? This is actually not a podcast. It's really yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so, so yeah. what? What's your yeah. Travis? What's what's your advice to? And you come across a lot of other syndicators, and you know what are some of the mistakes that you see others make with regards to investors? And so, in other words, what's kind of your parting advice to syndicators who are you know trying to grow their businesses? Yeah, I think that you, you've, well, first of all, you've got to find a way to put content out there that lets people know who you are. And I think one huge mistake is trying to pick one platform and say, all right, we're launching a YouTube channel. That's what my company is going to specialize in. But you got to remember, a lot of people don't get on YouTube. They get on Instagram. Well, if you're not there, you missed them. 
You know, if, if you're not on Facebook, you miss them. If you're not on bigger pockets, you miss them, you know? So you got to get your content and your story out there. And I think circling back to one of the points I made earlier about not, not being a salesperson, like I can't tell you how much garbage I get on LinkedIn every freaking day of just, here's my deal. Here's the returns. Here's the link. I don't click on the link. You know, you don't know me. I don't know you, you know, that kind of stuff <laughs> or or those cheesy, you know, I love your profile. Want to connect? I mean, come on. You got to get to know people. You've got to ask them questions, I think. And you have to be solution oriented. I really think that's huge. And then once you get people in the door, it's the under promise and over deliver and doing what you say and being available and responsive and all, all the things that I'm sure we all know at that point. Yeah, I love it. Travis, how can people find out more about you and Ashcroft? Yeah, I, I give away 15-minute calls. It doesn't have to be about Ashcroft, just talking about multifamily, LP stuff, whatever. That link is ashcroftcapital.com forward slash Travis. Got downloadable resources there, a lot of things that you can check out. But again, not a pitch just for Ashcroft is how I connect with people in the world of every shape and size, gender and age. Awesome. Travis, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Michael and Garrett. Appreciate you guys. Yeah, I really like Travis's comment about raising capital and not selling people. And this is what I keep saying is when you're raising capital, you're not trying to actually raise money. You're really educating people, right? And to some degree, you're sharing your enthusiasm about the asset class that you have because there are certain advantages that we have with syndications that solve certain problems with the stock market. For example, there's less volatility with syndications. There's cash flow with syndications that we don't have in the stock market, and there are extraordinary tax benefits. So with syndications, we can, we can solve a lot of problems that the investor has. And I like Travis's focus on, hey, what are you trying to do? Why are you talking to me right now? What problem are you trying to solve? And then trying to figure out, well, what are the many ways, advantages that real estate has that can, that can address what the investor is, is trying to do? Is it cash flow? Is it wealth building? Is it inflation has? Is it tax benefits? So making it about the investor is, I think, a real key and a key takeaway for me. So like I used to sell knives, as I've mentioned many times, and that was more of a high pressure in your face sale when you're, you're going into someone's home to, to sell them a set of knives and you know that if you walk out the door, you don't get a sale right? essentially. And it, it was, you, once they got the knives, they, they, it solved whatever problem they had in the kitchen. Now this is not even close to that. As far as we don't care really if anyone invests with us or not, we just want to educate. We want to make sure they understand who we are, what we're about, what our, how we communicate, what our transparency is. And then what I've found a lot of times is investors in general, once they do it one time, they'll be like, oh, I get it. This makes a lot of sense. And I love this. And then they're looking for the next deal often enough. And so it's just, it's like, hey, we're here. If you want to partake and, and you can get into one of our deals when we have one open, great. And build a relationship with us. That's really what we're here for. Let's see how we work. If not, you know, no problem. Do the minimum if you want. It's fine. You know? And, and that's always been our approach. And I, and I love, you know, what he said when he said that they offer like a white glove service. So they have a team that's in place that can continually communicates and has that, that going for them because it, it matters a lot, especially when you're dealing with large sums of investor money. 
Yeah, I think you really got to focus on the investor. What does it take to to really focus on 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 the investor? And you got to be able to deal with a large number of investors potentially as you grow the business. And like you said, educating the investor is so key, right? Because people are they hear about the syndication and they're like, oh, is this legal? You know, and they don't really they're kind of afraid of it at, at first. And you have to educate them and make them comfortable with it. I think that's key. And that's I think why Joe puts out so much content and why we put out so much content. And what you'll find if you're listening to this, if you're an active operator who wants to raise capital is that raising capital is actually really enjoyable because you're not pitching people, you're not manipulating people, you're literally educating people about something you're really excited about. And if you're excited about anything, you know, you just lost a weight or did something really cool, you, you want to share it with people. And it's like that. So you're really not pitching people at all. But if you want some help raising capital, we'd be happy to, to help you with that. Check out our mentoring program at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. And we work one-on-one -on -one with people to help them not just do their first deal, but to scale their portfolios. And we've extended our, our mentoring program far beyond just helping you do one deal, which has been our focus, but we want to help you get to a thousand units and build generational wealth and leave a legacy. So if you want to work with us in that capacity, check out themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor and schedule a call. We'd love to have a conversation with you there. You'll find that raising capital is actually relatively easy and enjoyable once you know how to do it and you've done a couple of times and it's something you can learn very quickly. So really encouraged by that in your toolbox. Check us out. And hopefully you guys were were encouraged here by, by today about some best practices, really taking care of your investors. So catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblanc.com vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.